trees went out to name themselves the king. This is Grace Talks, a production of Martin UMC, an open and inviting United Methodist Church in Martin, Michigan, a co-charge with Shelbyville United Methodist Church, which worships on Sunday at 11 a.m. Martin worships Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and we would love to see you there. But the olive tree said, should I stop making all that I know as human beings? Our scripture today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the fire of hell. So when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on your way to, to court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better, to you, better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members for than, your, than your, for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unfaithfulness, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard it said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows that you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And don't swear by your head, for you can't make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes or yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, God our Lord, our Savior. Amen. I have to admit, I have something of a love-hate relationship with the lectionary. And while I get to decide whether or not I'm going to use the lectionary, it's one of those things that it forces us, it forces me to have to be a little more creative to use a little more imagination. The problem, though, is when we shift from the season we're in now, where we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, and then we have to so quickly shift into Lent already. And so we don't really get to spend the time in the Sermon on the Mount that it really deserves us to spend the time in, because when we, when we look at this passage, we're actually looking at 
three or four different passages that we could spend an entire sermon series on apiece. But we don't get to do that. Not right now, anyway. And so it's strange when we come to a passage like this. It's strange because what we find when we come to a passage like this, when we are faced with Jesus' teaching, Jesus speaking more than he usually speaks, is we're faced with something of a reality of our shared failings. Our failings to live up to the standard that Christ sets out in his teaching. What happens is that we are faced with the reality of how much our world, how much our nation, and often how much the church even fails at following in Jesus' teachings. Often it seems as though the church misses the point, misses the message in favor of lesser messages that tell us that power and profits and wealth and pleasure at any cost are more important. What is perhaps the strangest about the Sermon on the Mount, what is perhaps the strangest about the teachings of Christ is though it's not as though the teachings of Christ have ever really been attempted and failed. It's that the teachings of Christ have too often not been tried at all and then have been declared impossible. What is needed, perhaps, in our lives, what is needed, perhaps, in the church is a total restructuring around the, te the teachings of Christ instead of around the teachings of nation or institution or ideology. The difficult thing, as I said, in a passage like this, with it being so chock-full, is that it forces the one preaching to decide, do I preach on one topic or do I break it up and try to preach on them all? And unfortunately, I've opted for the latter. Or, unfor or fortunately, I don't know which. And so this sermon is going to be something of a set of mini-sermons where I'm going to go through a lot of stuff really quickly. <laughs> but hopefully we can find some meaning in it. So to begin with, in this passage, we have Jesus, and Jesus is talking about murder. In the passage, Jesus goes back to the Ten Commandments, specifically Exodus 20, verse 13, saying, you shall not kill, or as some translations read, you shall not murder. It would seem as though there has always been a lot of interpretation over this verse from the Old Testament, which allows those who claim to adhere to the Ten Commandments to sort of just ignore this one. To claim that when the passage says kill, it really just means murder, as though there are some forms of killing that are better than others. However, what we find in this passage is that Jesus completely reframes the topic and kind of takes away that chance to do anything with that, because not only does he talk about murder, not only does he talk about killing, but he refers to hatred and anger themselves as an act of killing. His warning against these things are so stern that not only does he say that those who insult or belittle or hold in hate and anger are in danger of reprimands, they are in danger of judgment itself. 
This seems so important to Jesus, in fact, that he tells us that we should even reconsider approaching the altar of God if we are upset or if we have wronged a neighbor. In Jesus' mind, it would seem that reconciliation, repentance, forgiveness, and love is actually even more important than worship in the traditional sense. And so, as usual, I can't help but imagine a church that does this, that holds reconciliation, repentance, and love and forgiveness to such a high standard that maybe there are even times when a worship service needs to be delayed if a wrong is done. If justice and forgiveness and mercy and love aren't flowing out, then perhaps the worship time isn't really helpful. When we turn to the next passage, when we turn to the next section, we get something of a twofer. Christ again pulls from the Ten Commandments, but then he pulls from further on into the Torah, into the the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy's teachings on divorce specifically. Where the law once spoke of adultery as not cheating on one's spouse, now Jesus is speaking against even looking at another in lust. Lust being this dehumanizing desire where the other person isn't a person so much as as a person to be in relationship with, so much as they are something to be consumed. Lust turns a person from from a person and turns them into a thing. However, he doesn't do what we have all too often done in our societies and blame the woman. No, he tells the one who is looking at another with lust that you're the one in the wrong. It is such, if it is such a problem then, he suggests, perhaps they should tear out their own eye or cut out cut off their own hand rather than allow themselves to be tempted. And again, as Gordon said, a bit of hyperbole there, we assume. (laughs) Hoping, we're hoping. But he says to do these things rather than allow ourselves to be tempted. It would seem that in Jesus' vision, it is not that we should blame each other for things like how we dress or how we present ourselves in a halftime show. Two weeks late, two weeks late reference, but nonetheless. But instead, maybe we should be holding ourselves to a higher standard of how we view and how we treat other people. Perhaps instead of blaming victims of sexual assault or rape, saying things like, or talking about things like how they were dressed or where they were or how they were leading him on or not saying no, perhaps we should be following in Jesus' standards and holding ourselves to a higher standard. He moves then to divorce, and I think I heard a chuckle there from someone, but I don't know who. Speaking of how once the teaching said that a man could divorce his wife for essentially any reason. But now when a man divorces his wife except for adultery, he is turning both her and himself into adulterers. Now we need to be careful here. Context. 
because this is one of those passages that have historically been used to prevent most commonly women from leaving abusive marriages. However, what this passage actually does when we read it in context is that it actually prioritizes the welfare of the woman, the woman who would have had less power in the society of the time. Whereas the law at the time allowed a husband to simply divorce a wife for any reason, now Christ is informing those gathered around him that no, marriage is more important than that. Marital covenants and your commitments to love and care for your spouse are so important that you can't simply toss it aside because you want to. Because what happened, what would happen in that society is that if you simply chose to divorce your wife, you would leave her without the protection of marriage. When a woman would marry in the ancient Near East culture of Jesus' time, in the Jewish culture of Jesus' time, in essence, the woman would be the property of the man. Everything that was hers would be his. She would leave her parents' household and join to his. And so when a husband would divorce his wife, this would leave her in a vulnerable, a vulnerable situation where she could easily be taken advantage of, where she could be harmed or abused because she has nothing. Jesus wasn't really one for seeking harm against women, and I think if he knew how this passage would be used, he might have rephrased it. Because he wasn't really one for blaming women for the actions of men, and there's perhaps no greater example than this than with another interaction that we see with the Samaritan woman in John 4. And often, again, this passage has been used to talk about how Jesus sees all of our sins and knows that the woman was sinful because she had five husbands and now she has a, she's living with a man who's not her husband. This passage has often been used to talk about how the woman is to be shamed for her sinning, for her living in an extramarital affair. However, considering this fact that has been mentioned, that women weren't the ones in power. This woman, Jesus understood, wasn't so much a sinner as a victim of the society that she lived in. She was living with another man because it was the best option she had. The truth is that rather than this woman being loose and divorcing husband after husband, Christ is actually lifting her up and she becomes one of the first evangelists of the good news in the Gospel of John. And so rather than shaming or belittling, Jesus seems more interested in uplifting women and forcing men, his disciples especially, to see them as not only included in the kingdom of God, but perhaps strange thought, even equal to men. Now all of this then leads to the final bit that we have to cover today, and while there's a lot more of the Sermon on the Mount that we could cover, time marches on. And so we leave off with the next passage in which Jesus teaches about swearing and making and taking oaths. And so he pulls from a paraphrased version of Leviticus 19 where once the law said, don't swear falsely, 
but honor the vows that you make. But now Jesus tells the disciples, don't make oaths at all. And this is perhaps one more than any of the others that we've covered today that seems to most interfere with the way things just kind of go. Because Jesus says here, don't swear, don't make pledges, don't take oaths on anyone or anything, not on God, not on Jerusalem, not on anything or anyone on earth. Instead, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And that's quite a word. That's quite a, man, that's quite a commandment. And maybe it should be one of those things that, one of those words of Jesus's that causes us to rethink even something like the Pledge of Allegiance. The problem with oaths is that they have this very real potential to both make us liars and to place us in compromising situations. Because we might have to decide which master are we serving. Do we serve the master who tells us, love your enemies, or do we serve the master who tells us it's okay to kill and hate them? In the next chapter, Matthew 6, this still being the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will despise the one and be devoted to the other. We need this realization that we can't serve two masters. To quote Bonhoeffer, who I've mentioned two weeks ago was going to accompany us as we move through, the journey, move through the Sermon on the Mount, he says, For the Christian, no earthly obligation is absolutely binding. Any oath which makes an unconditional demand will for him be a lie. The most an oath can do is to testify that the Christian is bound to God alone and that every other obligation is for the sake of Jesus conditional upon that will. To wrap up, I need to pose a predicament, one that seems relevant every few years, though not too relevant as it hasn't. It's been a few years since we've really seen any news about this. But every few years, there seems to be one of those controversies which surrounds the placement of a Ten Commandments monument in a public space. And every time this happens, there seems to be this argument over whether such displays should be allowed. But the thing about this that seems strange is that oftentimes we become so preoccupied with whether the Ten Commandments that should be allowed in a public space that we overlook the lack of any place for the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps it's because the Sermon on the Mount is too radical. Perhaps the Sermon on the Mount is too much against the grain of the world that no government, no worldly power would want to display it. After all, a message of radical love, of radical mercy and forgiveness would seem insane in a world like ours. And so to quote from Ellen's favorite author, which she was excited about when she heard, 
the drafted World War II veteran Kurt Vonnegut, best known for Slaughterhouse-Five, among other books. He wrote, For some reason, the most vocal Christians among us never mention the Beatitudes, but often they demand that the Ten Commandments be posted in public buildings. I haven't heard one of them demand, though, that the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, be posted anywhere. Blessed are the merciful in a courtroom. Blessed are the peacemakers in the Pentagon. To take it further, don't store up treasures for yourself on earth or don't refuse anyone a hand in a bank or on Wall Street. Might it be that deep down the whole of the world realizes that the Sermon on the Mount is threatening to the way things are? Because if this Jesus guy is really God like we seem to be convinced that he is, then it might actually have an effect on how we're to live together. It might be that it displays a world that is utterly unlike our own, and might it be that what this Sermon on the Mount does when we apply it and when we follow it to its logical conclusion is that it might rearrange the entire way we live in the world. It might rearrange and it might cause us to have to reevaluate how do we fight our wars, how do we invest our money, how do we grow our food, how do we harvest the earth, how do we prioritize, especially when we seem to be prioritizing property and profits over people. Might it be that all of that needs to be reevaluated? Now, as it is, we don't live in that world yet. And yet, this is how Jesus tells us to live. To live with an ethic, to live with a mind of caring for each other, of caring for other people, of loving everyone we meet. Of living with a mind that is dedicated to grace and compassion and love and forgiveness and empathy. And while we can't change the world by ourselves, we can't change the world alone. We can remember that Christ has called us residents of another kingdom. Sons and daughters of the Most High God. People living into a new way of life that, that is dedicated to lifting up the oppressed and the needy, dedicated to those beatitudes, the poor and the mourning and the meek and the hungry and the merciful and the pure-hearted and the peacemaker and the persecuted. Might it be as we're Methodists and we like grace that we are to live lives of grace on grace living lives that are dedicated to those Christ has declared children and residents of the kingdom of God. Amen.